We're reading in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 16. If you remember last week's episode, we have King Ahab that is looking for Elijah. He's looking, he's asking in the countries round about, he's taking oaths that they don't know where Elijah is. And here Obadiah finds Elijah, and I can just see the blood drain from his face as Elijah tells Obadiah, go tell Ahab where I am. And Ahab is, and Obadiah is like, what did I do? What did I do that you would have Ahab kill me because you're not going to be here when I get back? And Elijah says, no, I'll be here. And in verse 16, it says, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, 
and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. I'm going to pray over the sermon and for Barry. I invite you to pray with me. God, you are God. You are the Lord. The God of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and our God as well. Father, I pray that we would bend the knee of our hearts to you this morning and that we would submit to you and say in our hearts that you are God. I pray that you would speak to us through your holy word, and I pray that you would be with Barry, that you would fill him, God, with strength, with your spirit, that your words would go out with power to change. God, we need your power to change our lives. We need your Holy Spirit to work in us. So God, I pray that you would move powerfully through your word this morning. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'd like to say welcome. I'm glad you could be with us on this Lord's Day. My name is Barry. I'm not the lead pastor here, but it's my privilege and responsibility to step in this morning in relief of Pastor Paul to give him a week's break. As we go to Mount Carmel, not Mount Caramel. There's no ice cream involved here, don't, so don't even be thinking about that. Mount Carmel. What an epic story in the God Wars that this story has all been about. A climax, as there are many climaxes, as there will be throughout all of redemption history, as there is in Christ, and there will be at the end a climax in a contest of God Wars. Who is the living God? The message of the text is pretty plain. It's on the voice of the people as they respond to the fire that falls from heaven. The Lord, he is God. Repeat, the Lord, he is God. He is indeed the living God. If there's a couple images that I would like you to have in your mind this morning, they would come from the scripture text that were read earlier. The first image is of a scarecrow out in a cucumber field who, if it wants to go somewhere, it would be very nice if you would, please, those of you that made me, if you would come and get me and take me where I want to go, except I can't ask you because I can't talk. That's the image of an idol that the Jeremiah chapter 10 would like us to have. It's a pretty stark image, isn't it? 
It's, in fact, mockable, and that word is relevant to our story this morning. The other image is from Psalm 96 that I read this morning. That the Lord reigns, let the whole earth tremble at his presence. Does the concept and idea of a living God make you tremble? <laughs> I, I, I have an aim this morning. I, I, I want us all to tremble at this very idea, this very notion that there is in this world a living God. It is astounding. Just to stop and think about it for a moment. A living God. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people gather together in places like this and do things similar to what we're doing. One of them is ritualism. I just like ritual, you know? There's just something about doing the same thing week after week. It just, it just makes me feel good. Well, good for you. But that's not why we gather. There's something really attractive about tribalism. You know, I, I too, I like hanging out with people who think just like I do, who talk just like I do, who say things the way, well, almost the way, just the way I do. <laughs> that's called tribalism. But that's not why we're here this morning. The only reason that we would gather is because we believe that it is reasonable to believe that in this world, that it didn't make itself, that it has a maker, and that that maker is the living God. He's no scarecrow in a cucumber field. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for the living God. Not just for a God, not for someone's God, not for, not for your God, but for the living God. Oh Lord, may this story make us thirsty. Jeremiah says the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting King. Amen. Hallelujah. If I don't get anything else across to you through this morning, that's what I want you to get. That this is a God story. And it's all about God. And, and whatever God shows of himself through Elijah is a glimpse, it's a foretaste of what God will show us definitively in Christ. I hope you understand that. Yes, we're in the Old Testament. Yes, we're in all of the stories that, 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 that precede Christ. But in these stories, there's nothing that you can take home today that is of profitable nature for you spiritually if you cannot get to Christ from those stories. Because whatever is known about God is known definitively in all of its richness, in all of its fullness, in all of its application to us in the person of Christ. So the question of the text isn't what has, what has Elijah done? The question of the text is, God, what are you like? What are you like? That's because the question of heaven won't be, have you been like my servant Elijah? <laughs> Don't go to heaven and say, well, I tried to be as good as I could and do just what Elijah did and David and, and Samuel and all the rest of them. The question of heaven is this, do you know my son? And this story demonstrates definitively what is ultimately true in the son. 
He is the living God, and God wins. He wins all the time, every time. And so that's the main point. This is a God story. He has a glory that he wants us to see through this story. Don't try to live the Christian life without that glory. And God graciously, mercifully desires to see his glory, that we would live in the light of his glory, and that he is the winning side. Not, not he's on the winning side. <laughs> I'm on God's team. No, he is the winning side. Always. What is true of God being on the winning side of Elijah with the Baal? With the Baal? I'm just going to say Baal this morning, okay? Is that okay with you? And will you just, when I say Baal, you just insert whatever you want. It's true of Elijah and Baal. It's going to be true of Jesus and the grave, the greatest contest of all, the one that actually makes the most difference in our lives. And it'll be true in the end of God's defeat over Satan and all that are arrayed with him. Let me show you a map of Mount Carmel. <clears throat> I went there on Google Maps on Wednesday. It didn't cost me a thing, and I got a... A uh, really, really good glimpse. How many of you have been to Mount Carmel? Yeah, probably lots of you. It's just below the modern-day city of Haifa in northern Israel, just south of Lebanon. You know what's really interesting? You look at a map of that area, and the, the, the border lines through Syria and they're Lebanon, they're headed down towards Israel, and they just, they just end. <laughs> it just stops. Fascinating. And we're going to have quite a few war stories in the next few chapters to work through. But the historical context is that Elijah prophesied in this northern kingdom, and that's where Mount Carmel is. It's obviously north of Jerusalem. It's, it's north and to the coast of Samaria and straight, east of, or straight west of Damascus, the other northern capital in the northern kingdom. And what I mean by northern kingdom, it's the divided kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdoms of, or the nations or the tribes of Israel split ten to the north and two to the south. And the northern kingdom had its own kings. That's what Ahab is. He's a king of the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom had its kings in the line of David. And it overlooks the plain of Jezreel, which will factor into the stories as we come as well. And it also, interestingly enough, overlooks a little place called Megiddo, which in Revelation chapter 6, in the Greek, is called Armageddon. And this is a valley. This contest is being done on the bluff of a hill that overlooks a valley where every single warrior in history that has conquered one of the three continents connected here, the Europe and Asia and, and, and Africa, has gone through this very valley, including God at the end. It's, it's a, just a, a wonderful picture of the contest that God has entered into here and how it tells the story of what he will do, not only through history, but at the end of history. And this history, the, the story of this northern kingdom, is close to the end of its history as we read this story. There are two prophets that prophesied to this northern kingdom of all of the prophets in the Old Testament. Only two of them were committedly or dedicated to speak to this northern kingdom. And those two are Amos. Pastor Paul quoted Amos with regards to the famine in the land a few weeks ago. And Hosea. And Hosea is full of 
many metaphors which we'll be alluding to this morning, which you may be familiar with. But within 150 years, the northern kingdom would be wiped out. Assyria would come down and he would assimilate, Borg-like, I guess, I don't know, uh, assimilate the people who lived in this northern kingdom. So when Elijah says, how long? How long are you going to limp between two opinions? It's a very, very relevant question. Historically, the answer to that question is about another 150 years. And then that would be, that would be it. The story of Mount Carmel has several components to it that I'm going to work through briefly this morning, each of which relates to the glory of God. The first is this waffling people, this limping people, limping back between two opinions. And I, Elijah addresses this spiritual condition of waffling or limping. Proverbs 1.32 says this, the complacency of fools destroys them. And Elijah looks to the people. I wonder how long he actually looked into their eyes. They just sat there. They didn't say a word. They just sat there. Not a word from them. The complacency of fools destroys them. Our Lord experienced a similar thing, didn't he? When he would, would speak sometime in the temple courts and people wouldn't even respond to him and the gospel writers say, and everybody was silent. And Jesus would look around, disturbed that, that the, the presence with all of the things that he brought with his presence and all of the things demonstrating that God was with him could not stir people. They just looked at him. What is it that puts our bums on the fence? I mean, there's a lot of different things, I suppose, if you care to read through the study notes, I've gone through a few different things there that also, that makes, that, that just, it puts our bums on the fence, but one of them certainly is this. Like spectators in any contest, you want to wait and see who wins. Who wants to be on the losing side? Let's just, let's just watch this out. I'm not going to, I'm not going to commit now. I mean, there's going to be a contest here. Let's see who wins. Wait until the winning side is proved. Today we would simply call it pragmatism. I mean, it's only practical, right? Who wants to do things that are on the losing side? Whatever works best at the moment or appears to be the winning side and serves me best, I'll, I'll limp over there. And if something over there seems to be the winning side and that seems to serve me best, well, I'll, I'll, I'll limp over there. And then, you know, I'll turn around again and I'll, I'll, I'll limp over there. If that seems to be the winning side. We can treat God like that, can't we? Like a, some domesticated God, not, not the living God. I, I hope I have the sense this morning to, to use that phrase over and over again because I, I want you to leave with that idea in your head. The living God, not a pocket God, not a pocket God that you take out and feed once in a while. There you go. That's a good God. Now, you know what? I actually don't need you right now. I'm going to go over here. This is a lot more fun, a lot more enjoyable. And you know what? Seems to be winning right now. The Christian life isn't the practical life, it's the saved life. 
You won't find godliness practical in many conditions, in many situations. Your pragmatism won't guide you to the winning side. Faith will guide you to the winning side. The work of the Spirit revealing the living God will lead you to the winning side. I mentioned Hosea. Is it okay if I go there? You know, the scripture uses very adult language to describe this spiritual condition. And some of you might be familiar with it. It's the language of sex. It's the language of spiritual or uh, of physical unfaithfulness. Or Hosea isn't talking about sex. He's talking about a spiritual condition, but the, God uses the very image, or vivid and image of physical unfaithfulness to describe something in the spiritual realm. A spiritual unfaithfulness, a, a spiritual adultery. And so Hosea 4.12 says, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staffs give them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they've left their God to play the whore. It echoes words as far back as Moses out in the wilderness as the people prepared to go into the land where Moses did not go, but this is what he said about them as they prepared to enter the, la enter the land. He said, you'll tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim for you shall not worship their God for the Lord whose name is a jealous, whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited, and you eat of their sacrifices, and you take of their daughters and sons, and their daughters, they whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. It's, it's provocative language. And it doesn't go away. You think, oh man, I really don't like the Old Testament. <laughs> The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 17, listen to this, and, and it says where John uses the same imagery to describe what was going on in his day in the seven churches. He uses the same imagery of sex to describe what was going on in the hearts of the people. And the great influence in the world that, that John sees, he says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Well, no wonder they, 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 they limp back and forth. No wonder they, they, they totter back and forth. They're, they're drunk. It's a mix of about three different metaphors together. Waffling has two components. It's the love of pleasure. Like Proverbs chapter 7, the seduction of the adulterers. Come, my bed is spread. It's covered with all nice fragrances and linens. It's all ready for you to the young man. Come, there's the pleasure. But it's also rooted in deception. The delusion of, of no consequences where the prostitute also says, and my husband's gone. <laughs> Not coming home for a long time. There's 
the delusion. And this is the world in which we're called to live faithful in, the living God, with faithful and true hearts to him. As Paul says to Timothy, and that, that there will be days of the love of pleasure will rule. And Peter says there will be days when people will scoff. Where is this coming that you speak of? Where is it? Your husband seems to be gone. And Elijah's question, how long, points to the unreasonableness of their, of their condition. It implies that it, it, it can't go on forever. How long will you, will you keep doing this? It's the same thing that the psalmist prays. How long will the wicked thrive? Well, the answer is not very long. Not very long. And the martyrs underneath the altar, Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 6 say, How long, O Lord, before you judge the earth? The answer is not very long. This can't go on forever. Nor can the limping go on forever. Limping can't continue because there can't be two supreme living gods. Even to the common sense reasonableness of anybody. There can't be two living gods. You have to decide. Who loves you best? Who can take care of you? Who can be your shepherd, your cucumber out in the, or your scarecrow out in the, the cucumber field, or the one before whom the earth trembles and worships at his footstool? Who can be your shepherd, not just in life, but in the biggest contest of all? You see, we can look very reasonable with the things that we rely on to get through life. We can look very sophisticated and very normal, actually, in all the things that we rely on to get through life. But, but what is unreasonable to, is to understand that we need a shepherd not just in life, we need a shepherd in death as well. And that is exactly where Jesus went. This isn't just a story about Baal and, the, and Elijah. This is a story about a God who wins and his son came into the world and he went into the place where we most know, all of us reasonably, that we have no hope of laying hold onto anything in this world that we can call to, that there will be nothing but silence. And Jesus won. He won over the grave. Praise the Lord. That's why there is such a thing as a Lord's Day. It's his day, peculiar and uniquely. Note in Elijah's words it's clearly that the winner would be served. If Baal is God, then serve him, follow him. But, but, if the Lord is God, then serve him. See, if you're going to develop a theology that believes in a living God, then understand the implications of serving him where God reveals his glory, he brings along commitment. And it's, quite frankly, the only way to serve God. Not just a, a moral awareness, not a, an institutional manipulation, not a fear of anybody around us, not a, a pride that wants to look good. Hold us fast, Lord, hold us fast. 
Well, the second component is a useless God. Wow, what a, a memorable passage this is of them lacerating themselves and chanting and calling out. And, and the reason for that, there was more at stake than just their pride. Their lives were at stake, as we'll see as we get near the end of the story. They weren't just like, oh man, I'm sure hope we can do this. They were like, oh, I really hope we can do this. Let me ask you a question. I mean, just as these words echo in our mind of Elijah taunting people who called and crying out to a non-being God. Is your life mockable in the sight of God? Is my life like... You say, well, well God would never do that. He would, he would never mock me. Well, have you read Proverbs 1? Those who close their ear to wisdom, those who shut their heart to my call to listen to me, will mock you. Is your life mockable? Think of it from, from the God perspective. Really? You trust in that? Really? You think you're, you're a big boy, a big girl? See, Baal is just like his prophets because he is made in their image. That's where, that's where Baal came from. He came, he came out of their heads. He came out of their imagination. And so, like the Baal prophets, Baal too, he needs help. He needs his sleep. He has to defecate. He can't be in two places at once, and sometimes he, he really likes to be amused. You see, what, what idol worship does is it, it takes us from the hands of omnipotence and puts us in the hands of impotence. God, on the other hand, is, is not like his prophets, not, not at all like his prophets. Elijah also is just a man. He needed to sleep too. Elijah needed to defecate. He needed to do all of those things also. But the difference is that Elijah's God is not the product of his imagination. He is the living God. And he assures us that as the living God, he will not be mocked. Paul says that to the Galatians. That don't have any doubt in your head about this. That God will not be mocked. Now, just stop and think about that for a minute. Think of the, of the silence when, when Chris read, read the text there. Deafening silence. No one heard. No one answered. Not a word. No one paid attention, it says. All of the things that Elijah heaped upon them are met with silence. I think it's a wonderful hope that God will not be mocked. And when we determine to stand on his side, as Elijah is calling the people here too to get off the fence, stop limping, stop waffling, stand on his side and endure the taunts that will inevitably come. Do you believe that you can live fearing the living God in this world today and not face ridicule? You know, there comes a point in our life, maybe that's what keeps some of us on the fence. Like, oh, you know what? I just, I just want to be liked. I really, you know, I... There comes a tipping point where you've got to decide. You believe what? 
You believe those stories are true? You, you believe what's going to happen? And, and as a church, we can't run and hide what our Bible says about the way that we are called to live in this tsunami, in the change of our sexual revolution in our culture. We can't just run and cower and cover our heads and say, well, I hope nobody ever notices what we believe. There's going to come a time when we will have to stand and say, we stand on the word of God. And I think it's a wonderful hope that those who do stand on the side of God and are willing to endure whatever taunts that there are of those who fear God, that God will never allow those taunts to be proven true. God is not mocked. Isaiah 54 17. I wonder if our Lord, yes, he would have. He would have known these words. Of course he would have. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. God is not mocked. contest that we're reading about began over who is the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. No, you're the troubler of Israel, and you know how things go. It escalates, and pretty soon you're racing for pink slips. Except there's something a lot more at stake. There's a lot of contests in this world that really mean nothing in the end. This one meant everything. And the contest has escalated to who is the living God? Who is the real God? And the stakes are very high. The outcome would not only determine who is the living God, but it would also determine who would live and who would die. Elijah or the prophets of Baal? Prophesying was not for the faint of heart. Their lives were on the line. They, they lived on a, on a razor's edge of truthfulness and of fulfillment. God was very clear through Moses that if the prophets prove false, then his punishment is death. Because they're, they're guilty. They're guilty of spiritual murder. If the people are guilty of spiritual adultery, the prophets are guilty of spiritual murder. It's like standing on the side of a cliff and, and directing traffic with your, with your traffic vest on, saying, this way, this way, this way, over the bridge, when there is no bridge. When the bridge is a non-bridge, so it is when the God is a non-God. Not a man-God, but a non-God. And so verse 40 says this, that Elijah took them and he slaughtered them. Those are very, very sobering words story. I mean, it, probably you, some of you might have been thinking, you know what? If we could have just ended the story before, that would have been a great story. What a way to ruin a great story. What are we doing here in the Old Testament? Anyway, can we go home now? Let's go back to the New Testament. I want to hear more about the love of God. Let me take a moment and explain something. Slaughtered. Slaughtered is a very technical word. It's, it's the vocabulary of the altar, isn't it? It's the vocabulary of the temple. It wasn't, it's not just, you're not just taking a life or killing, you're, you're slaughtering something. It's the vocabulary of what goes on in the temple. And animals were slaughtered for sacrifice. Why were animals slaughtered for sacrifice? As a substitute. 
as a substitute for the life of the worshiper, this life for that life. But, but, if your God is a non-God, if your God is a dead God, and can't appear to show his acceptance of that substitute because he's actually really not a god at all. He's like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, and he's silent. Then it's your life instead of the bull. Now, the New Testament doesn't shun the idea of a slaughter, of course. Somebody said if people think that the New Testament is different than the Old Testament. They haven't really read their New Testament. I would agree with that. At the center of the story of the New Testament is a slaughter. Isaiah 53 predicted it like a, a sheep that has led to a slaughter. At the center of the gospel story is a, is a slaughter who is a substitute. And the good news is that, that God spoke when that substitute was offered because he is the living God and the sacrifice was accepted for those who embrace the sacrifice. His life for ours. And that response is a merciful response. Such a merciful response. Unlike the, the failed machinations of the prophets, Elijah simply speaks to God. And God does respond graciously, mercifully. There's, there's nothing in the people that demanded a response from God except they are the people to whom God has made covenant-dealing promises with. It's not that they merited a response. It's not that they were better than anybody else. But they were people who had heard the words of the living God. And Elijah knows that his God can't be manipulated. He doesn't, he doesn't dance around. He doesn't, he doesn't cut himself for hours and hours. He simply speaks, even as the New Testament teaches us to, to use less words. It's not all about us. It's about a living God who hears us. And Elijah simply prays, knowing that his God would be faithful. And he, and he builds up the altar with 12 stones, not just 10, 10 of the northern kingdom, but, but 12 all of God's people included in God's eyes. God speaks to all of them. And he actually doesn't even pray for fire. If you look at what he prays for, what he asks for, he, he prays for turned hearts. The Lord in the, in the demonstration of fire, what I want more than anything else, I, I don't want fire, I want hearts that are turned to you. But fire does appear. Graciously, not on command like Elijah had some pocket god that kept on a leash to do tricks when he needed him, but a merciful demonstration that God desires his people to see his glory and give them no doubt that their, their trust in him is not misplaced. Whatever contest you face in life, including the biggest contest that you will face, whatever contest this world goes through, including the biggest contest that this world will go through, God wins. 
It seems like the whole story is tilted towards giving Baal the advantage, doesn't it? As Chris read the story, you can see that they're on, they're on home turf. You can see why Elijah would say, well, go and do this and go and do that, and we'll do this. And they all go, yeah, okay, we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll do this. It's because they thought that probably that they had home turf advantage. They were right smack dab in the middle of Baal worship country. Elijah was not on home turf. The number of prophets outnumbered Elijah tremendously. Fire, well, that was right up Baal's alley. Yeah, let's do fire. Baal's the fire god. Let's do that. And water, water poured around and around the altar so that the people would know beyond all shadow of a doubt and couldn't say, well, that was, that was really cool, Elijah. How'd you do that? In the same way that when our Lord was crucified, there was no way that people could say, oh, he's alive. Well, how did you do that, Jesus? There was absolutely no doubt. There was no trick involved, either in the calling of fire from heaven to devour the altar or the resurrection of Jesus from a dead, cold grave. But the power of God was being demonstrated. Why? So that we would trust in the power of a living God. Not a stick in a cucumber field. And today you might feel that if you look around in this world, that, that the world has every advantage. You just, I mean, you look out there, you look at the media, huh? advantage world. Look at politics. Look at our places of governance. And you think, well, advantage world. Look at the home. Look at the state of our homes and, and, and the condition of so many relationships in our homes. You think, well, advantage world. Look at our institutions. Look at our training institutions. God be with our teachers and nurses who stand in places that have to be oppressive. And you think, well, advantage world. That's why we need these stories. Because advantage world is no advantage at all with God, if he is the living God. Fire speaks of God's acceptance speaks of a lot of different things in the scripture, including wrath. But it also speaks of acceptance, of God's merciful demonstration that, yes, I accept your offering. What you're offering to me, I, I, it, it's pleasing to me. And God appears and he shows with fire when all of the things of the tabernacle were ordained to the Lord. God appeared with fire. Solomon dedicated the temple when the people were led in the wilderness, when Gideon offered a sacrifice, when David offered a sacrifice after the plague in Israel. God answered with fire. And so it is here also. God shows his acceptance of the sacrifice. And it's good news that the bull has been accepted and consumed. Therefore, you will not be consumed. And so it is in Christ. So it is in Christ. Ever wonder why there was fire at Pentecost? Where did Jesus go? You know, he was here a day ago. He was here yesterday. Where did he go? Well, he's ascended into heaven, and fire comes down to heaven. Not only that, to show not only has he ascended into heaven as God's sacrifice and the slaughtered one for sin, but he's been accepted. This sacrifice has been accepted into heaven as the apostles had the privilege and delight of witnessing and experiencing and proclaiming, which we have that same message today. 
He is our slain lamb. And the message on Mount Carmel is very similar to the message of the book of Revelation, where the influence in the world is described as one of seeking pleasure and being deceived about its consequences. And in the end, the Lord wins. He is our slain lamb. See, you're not just the center of the story, the idea of slaughter, or the center of the New Testament, but the center of heaven itself. Could you stand with me? I'm going to close by reading from Psalm 97, and then we'll sing immediately after that. Psalm 97 says this, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world and the world sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Hold us fast, Lord. Hold us fast.